0: morning, church family. Welcome to our 845 service. Thank you for joining us here in person. Thank you for those that are joining us online. We're going to find ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to dovetail last week's message with this week's message and give you a little further uh, understanding of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. In just a moment, we have some good news. Uh, uh, The way we do membership here at Desert Hills is every couple of months, we have a membership class, and anybody that is coming for membership... Um, has a testimony of salvation. And then after that salvation, they've been baptized by immersion, not as a means to salvation, but to profess their salvation. And then they understand what our church believes and are in alignment with that. They go through the membership class and we have several people in this service that are coming to identify with Desert Hills. They've been through a membership class and they want to be recognized uh, as members. Roy Fox, if you would stand or raise your hand. Roy, there's Roy. We'll save our applause here for just a minute. Uh, Sue Davis. Sue Davis, are you here this morning, Sue? Sue's right here. Uh, Rochelle McNamara. Rochelle, is she here this morning? And Christina Ebert. Uh, Well, let's give them a hand this morning. They're all coming for membership here today at Desert Hills. Thank you, and I want to say a word of thanks to all of our veterans that are here today. I know it was on Friday we celebrated Veterans Day, the 11th day of the 11th month, at the 11th hours when it kind of initially went down. And I was at a veteran service this week, and uh, just was moved. And I'm, I'm grateful for our veterans. I'm grateful for their service. I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have in America. In fact, I was so moved while I was in that that service. They did this thing called the pageantry of flags. And I'd never seen it before where they showed all the flags that are in the history of America and they gave, uh, you know, all the history about it. And I was moved and then they did the, uh, the table, uh, the memory, memory table, and I was moved by that. And, uh, and I thought to myself, I thought, you know, when our country was founded, you had these people that were diametrically opposed in a lot of things that they believed. I mean, they did not like each other and they did not like some of the things that each other stood for, but they realized, if we're going to stand against England, we have to come together on what's important. And they did. And for 200 and some years, we've had one of the freest, greatest countries in all of the world, in all of history. And I was watching all this stuff go down. I love our country so much. And as all this stuff was going down, all this patriotic music was being played, I was like, maybe I can run. <laughs> you know, it's so hard. You hear you know, one person against another person. And, and the first thing that they try to do is they bash the other person. And I thought, I don't need to do that. I could just say what I'm for. And I thought, you know what, if I did that, I hate politics, and I thought I'd be taking a step down. Because I believe what I'm going to give you today can affect your life more than that. So what is the heart of Jesus? Many would say it's evangelism. And they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. In fact, his last words ought to be our first priority. Jesus himself said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, obviously evangelism is important and we understand that from the time of Christ until until today, we have people involved in evangelism. If it weren't so, we wouldn't even have a church today. But somebody gave you the gospel, somebody gave me the gospel, somebody gave your mom and dad the gospel, and as a result of that, we are continuing to perpetuate the message of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would say that's fair to say evangelism is near to the heart of Jesus. But somehow we get the idea that because Jesus is in heaven, seated on God's strong right hand, that somehow today he is less approachable and less compassionate than when he walked on the face of the earth. Now Jesus, while he walked on the face of the earth, was called a friend of publicans and sinners. He extended grace and empathy to everyone he met. In fact, as you look at his journey in the Gospel of John, in John chapter two, we see him extending grace and empathy when he's invited to a wedding feast and they ran out of beverages. Here he showed his compassion by performing his first miracle at the marriage of Cana in Galilee by turning the water into wine. In John chapter 3, a ruling Pharisee met Jesus by night so as not to be noticed by the other Pharisees. And Jesus met him with empathy and compassion instead of ridicule and judgment. What? Are you coming to me by night? Are you ashamed to come to me by night? Shouldn't you stand if you have any backbone at all and stand in front of your fellow Pharisees and let them know what you're seeking out and who you are? That's not how Jesus met Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman with a pass met Jesus and as they, as they both went to a well to get water, Jesus didn't belittle her nor did he judge her. He showed her grace and empathy and told her to go and sin no more. In John chapter 5, Jesus meets a man who didn't know his legs had never worked from birth, and he was waiting for an angel to stir the waters at the pool of Bethesda, uh, because it was said that the first person in the waters after the angel stirred them would be healed. This man couldn't give Jesus anything. This man was completely at the mercy of others. And Jesus had compassion and empathy on him as he told him, Rise, rise. Take up thy bed and walk. Everywhere Jesus went, he showed grace, love, empathy, and compassion. Everywhere. In fact, the Bible tells us that during his earthly ministry in the book of Acts, Jesus went about doing good. He went about doing good. Now, if we could take our ear... Remember how you used to do when you were a child and you would go to your dad or your, your mom and you'd place your air on, ear on their chest just to hear their heartbeat? If you could take your ear and place it on the heart of Jesus right now to sense and understand Jesus' deepest longings and affections for mankind, including you, I believe you would find these verses we're about to talk about in Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then, we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Because of this, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, as human beings, everything within us tells us that Jesus is with us. He's for us. He's committed to us. And he's helping us when our lives resemble our testimony of faith, when we're living out the Christian life when we're doing all the things that are right, then we think Jesus is for us. He's with us. He's in our corner. But the text says something different. It says that he's most identifying with us in our infirmities, in our weaknesses, in our hurt. Jesus hurts. In our suffering, Jesus suffers. In our struggles, Jesus struggles. His heart is drawn into our pain. He loves and cares for us in such a way that when we as his children struggle, his nature is to help in any conceivable way that he can. That's what we see in our text. And as we look at the heart of Jesus this morning, it's first identified in the greatness of of his priesthood. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus' priesthood is identified and explained. In fact, in chapter one, he is seen as the priest who purged our sins. In chapter two, he is seen as the one who is our merciful and faithful high priest. In chapter three, he is seen as the sent one and the high priest of our profession. In chapter 7 through 9, the emphasis is almost exclusively on Jesus' high priesthood. And here in chapter 4, Jesus is presented as our great high priest. Notice the Bible says that we have a great high priest. He is great in that he surpasses every priest that came before him or after him. He is great because his work as a priest cannot be compared in its scope, in its cost, and in its power. He is so great that, in effect, he ended the priesthood with his once-for-all sacrifice of himself. There's no need anymore for a priesthood because Jesus ended it all. In fact, he is great as our only mediator between God and man. You don't need me to go to God on your behalf. You don't need some other man with some religious name to go to God on your behalf. Jesus went to God on our behalf and became the once for all sacrifice for our sins. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. Now, any claim of priestly mediation today between God and man in offering forgiveness of sins, in making cleansing for supposedly repeating Christ's sacrifice through a ritual, or any such proposition or practice is entirely unscriptural, unbiblical, and sinful. In effect, That type of behavior says that an offering for sins sufficient to redeem man is yet to be made. But my Bible says, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice forever, sat down on the right hand of God. It was finished because he is our great high priest. Now, Jesus' humanity is explained in his great priesthood. Notice the text. Seeing then we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Notice what it says, Jesus. The one who passed into the heavens is Jesus. The name Jesus emphasizes his humanity. It means he who saves his people from their sins. And his name is mentioned in reference to his ascension. He who is passed into the heavens. The God-man Jesus is in heaven and he understands us. He lived as a man. He hungered as a man. He thirsted as a man. He needed sleep as a man. He felt pain as a man. He felt sorrow as a man. He felt brokenness as a man. He took the sins of man upon himself and has risen victorious over them. And he has grace and empathy towards us in our most difficult moments because he came and took upon flesh to be as a man, our great high priest. Now Jesus' deity is emphasized as our great high priest. Notice the phrase, Jesus, the Son of God. His deity as well as his humanity are a central theme throughout the book of Hebrews. He is as much God as if he had never been man and as much man as if he had never been God. In his deity, he conquered sin victoriously on Calvary's cross. In his humanity, he became the priest to surpass all priests in that he didn't offer an offering for himself and then for the sins of the people as the Old Testament priest did. He was the offering. And notice what the Bible says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, notice what it says. Let us hold fast our profession. I love reading old books. And years ago, I read a book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Uh, The Pursuit of God and The Divine Conquest are those two more famous books of Tozer. And in his book, The Pursuit of God, Tozer says, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Now, one of the reasons why I often preach and give theology in our church is so that you, as you understand theology, as you understand about God, as you understand about Jesus, it affects everything in your life. And I don't just want you to hear cool stories, although sometimes I'll give them. I'm not very funny, I realized that a long time ago. I'm only funny when I don't try to be funny. My daughter's nodding her head profusely in the back. She's not very funny. But I realize this, uh, I realize if I give the Bible and I preach the Word and I, and I convey it and explain it long after I'm gone, the Word of God will continue to speak. So as you think about the implications of this theology, think about this. To enter the holiest place in the Old Testament era, the Holy of Holies, the priests had to pass through three areas in the tabernacle or when the temple was built. A lamb was slain in the courtyard of the temple, and the priest took the blood of that lamb and went through the door into the outer court, through another door into the holy place, and then through the veil into the holy of holies. He didn't sit down. He didn't delay. And as soon as the sacrifice was made, he left and did not return for another year. Every year. Year after year, another day of atonement, another Yom Kippur was necessary. Between these yearly sacrifices, every day, day after day, thousands of other sacrifices were made in the outer court of produce and bread and of animals. The process never ended. It was never completed because the priesthood was not perfect and the sacrifices were not perfect. But because Jesus has passed into the heavens and has fulfilled all his priestly duties, we believers can hold fast to the fact that what he accomplished for us is all sufficient. We can hold fast to our profession. There's nothing necessary. There's nothing left for sacrifice of sins. Jesus paid it all. And if you've received his sacrifice, you're secure. I like the old song. It goes, flee from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus is bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. We see Jesus' heart in his great priesthood. Secondly, we see Jesus' heart in the goodness of his empathy. Notice the text, verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched, moved, with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." Now, the primary philosophical minds of Paul's day all had their opinions of God and how he related to man in that era. The Stoics believed that the primary attribute of God was his inability to feel anything at all. They believed that if God could feel, He could possibly be controlled or manipulated. The Epicureans believed that God dwelt in the space between the worlds, totally detached from man and creation, no longer involved with man. The Jews knew that God was holy and righteous and sinless and perfect and omnipotent. Uh, They knew His divine perfections and character could not comprehend Him experiencing pain and much less experiencing temptation. Now, during the Old Testament era, God's dealings with his people seemed to be more indirect and seemed to be more distant. Jews believed that God was incapable of sharing the feelings of man. The idea that God could and would identify with men and their trials and temptations was out of the box for both Jews and Gentiles. And the writer of Hebrews says that not only have we a God who has been there, But we have a God who is there with us. Did you get that? Now, in Jesus' incarnation, God revealed himself to us through his Son as someone who deeply felt, as someone who hungered, as someone who thirsted, as someone who wept, as someone who suffered. He was tempted not with every temptation, but every conceivable way possible. The devil threw the kitchen sink at him. Everything he had, he threw at Jesus, yet without sin. And he took upon the sins of all mankind, becoming a curse for us, totally satisfying God's righteous demands. God was not detached in that. He entered into our world for the purpose of relationship and relating. And that's why the Bible says in Galatians, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, God's dealings with men in the person of his son were direct. The Bible says, for he hath made him, God hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In him. Think about this. Every one of us, literally, when he was on the cross, you and I were on his mind. He knew you would be born, he knew you would live where you have lived, he knew you would sin, he knew you would struggle. And yet, in all of that, he was still driven to the cross. Think about that for every one of us. In his goodness, he empathizes with us. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our infirmities. They drove him to the cross. They drove him to death. And they drove him to resurrection. And as our high priest, he can understand like no one else. And he can help us because that's his heart towards us. Think about it. When our relationships go wrong, and they do, when we have feelings of despondency and inadequacy, when it feels like we're on the the little turnstile of life, uh, uh, just spinning our wheels in life, not seeming to go anywhere, when it seems like that one shot of significance has bypassed us, when we can't sort out uh, the emotions that flood our souls, when somebody betrays us, when we're deeply misunderstood, when we're mocked, when we want to just end it all and throw in the towel there, right there. And in that moment, we have a friend. Our eternal high priest, who when he went to the cross and gave himself for us, each and every one of us was on his mind. And so we look at the heart of Jesus and see the greatness of his priesthood. We see the goodness of Jesus' empathy. And lastly, we see the compassionate grace of Jesus in our needs. Notice what the Bible says. The one who understands us perfectly and completely has provided for us perfectly and completely. First Corinthians says it this way, there hath no temptation or test taken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested above that you are able but will with that temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it and one of the ways he helps us to to bear these difficulties is spoken about in our text which says this let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, most of the leaders of antiquity were unapproachable by people like you and I, by common people. Now, some would not even allow the highest of officials to approach them without express permission. I'm reminded of the story of, of Esther in the Bible and her husband, King Ahasuerus, who is King Xerxes of the media Persian empire. Esther got wind of a plot to basically annihilate her people. And uh, uh, she heard about it and she wanted to do something about it. She wasn't going to stand for her people that were still in captivity, all being annihilated out of jealousy, out of, out of hatred towards a, a position that somebody else had gotten. And, and so she went in front of her husband, the king. And as she appeared before her husband, the king, she was taking her life into her own. Because even as his wife, it wasn't common or it wasn't well thought of to approach the king in this manner. But she did. And when she did, she saved her people. But with our God, any repentant sinner, no matter how wicked or undeserving, can approach God's throne because of what Jesus has done for them. Which brings me to a question. Have you received God's forgiveness of sins on the basis of what Jesus has done for you? Now, chapter 3, 4, and 5 in the book of Hebrews has this subject of the Sabbath and rest in mind. Now, during the Old Testament period, the Sabbath was observed with great diligence. People would not buy or sell. People would not cook or clean. They literally rested on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. People in every era and every time have been looking for a rest, a Sabbath. They they take vacations. They take time off. They find quiet places to to get clarity and peace and find rest for their souls. The Sabbath was to point man to the one who would truly give them hope and rest, the Messiah. And here's what the Bible says about our Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3, it says, For we which have believed do enter into rest. Now, we also understand Jesus fulfilled the law. All the Ten Commandments, Jesus fulfilled them. He is our Sabbath. And the Bible says that if we're saved, we have entered into rest. The Bible says, as he have said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my wrath, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the lamb slain, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. And he knew that his destiny was ultimately going to climax when he gave himself on Calvary's cross and then three days later rose from the dead. He knew that he was going to give us the opportunity to rest. So I ask you again this morning, don't you want rest for your soul? Don't you want rest for the payment of your sins? If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, won't you enter into his rest today? Now because of what Jesus did, we can approach not God's throne of judgment, but God's throne which is the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of of the grace. Now, the Bible speaks much of God's justice, but what a terrible thing it would be if God were only just and not also gracious. We as sinful man deserve death, the sentence of justice. But sinful man also needed salvation, and so we see the gift of grace. Now, any person who has come uh, to God's throne can come because it's a throne of grace and they can come with confidence and they can come with assurance. And the Bible says we receive mercy as we dwell on our past failures. Now, some of us can't get past something we've done in our past. I remember talking to a man here a couple of years ago and he was this close to being saved. And the reason why he couldn't get saved is he remembered back to an incident that he took part of some years before, and he couldn't get past it. He thought, how could God forgive me when I've done this? How could God forgive me when I broke one of his commandments here? Here. Jesus could never save me. And and then he finally understood that Jesus' payment was sufficient to pay for all of his sins and all of the sins of mankind. He finally got saved. But even as Christians, we have a tendency to live in the past. Something that we've done sidetracks us something that we've done we feel like God could never forgive us for but what we need to understand if We are a Christian all of our sins are forgiven and what we need to feel and sense is the mercy of God And as we come boldly unto his throne of grace not only do we understand we can come because it's a throne of grace But as we come and we bow our knee and we bow our heart we find mercy When we think there's going to be judgment We all need this. We receive the full heart of God because Jesus' heart was extended to us in his sacrifice and he mercifully meets us in our sins and misery, and his desire is to make us whole, and then we receive the full hand of God's grace, his unmerited favor and love, and it just keeps on coming, and it just keeps on coming, and it just keeps on coming. As James says, he giveth more grace, and there's always more grace, and he always wants to share it, and it keeps coming. And notice what the Bible says This grace is to help us in our time of need. The help is always in the time of need. It's not according to our clock, but according to heaven's timing, the perfect timing. So I ask you this morning, can you hear the heart of Jesus? His heart towards you. His heart towards your salvation. That's why he came. If you are saved this morning, realize what he's done for you as your great high priest realize the goodness of his compassion towards you, understand uh, uh, that he loves you, he understands your struggles, he sympathizes you with you, he, nor, and he doesn't want you to sin, he doesn't want me to sin, and the devil is going to throw his greatest arrows at God's children, but we need to understand, even if we do fall, we can get back up, and there's always mercy and grace. Do you understand his compassionate grace? Whatever the need is, whatever the struggle is, whatever the heartache is, you can approach God. You can approach God's throne and not find judgment, not find vindictiveness, not find disapproval, but find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Can you hear his heart this morning?